Hey guys, Jeff here. Another special treat this week, and that is part two, or the tag team messages me and Alyssa did. You heard Alyssa's amazing message last week, and so here is a message that I gave in Spokane that we wanted to bless you guys with, and hopefully it's an encouragement. You guys know we do our podcast in our home office every single week, but from time to time we like to... um, kind of drop just some messages we've given from conferences and keynotes and sermons in hopes that it would just kind of switch it up and be an encouragement to you guys. And here's the one that I did in Spokane with Alyssa. Now this is on Luke 15. I kind of run through the prodigal son story, which was deeply impactful in my faith Um, as a college student, deeply transformed me in one of my first uh, stories I fell in love with in the scriptures when I started walking with the Lord. Um, And I preached about it for uh, 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 a lot probably four or five years ago, but I haven't kind of preached through the text in a while. So it was really, really fun to dig back into it. And it's such a special passage. And I hope this blesses you. Hey guys, welcome to the real life podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week, real life, which means some episodes might be about a fight we just had. Some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things. And maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. What's up, guys? You guys doing good? Awesome, awesome. Hey, I am so excited to be with you tonight. Tonight's a special treat, not just for what you guys are about to get, but what I'm excited for in that uh, my wife, Alyssa, is speaking later. And let me just tell you why that's such a big treat. She's an incredible incredible person, but also a gifted communicator. And for most part, and for the most part, she actually says no a lot of times when she gets invited to speak. So I rarely get to hear her actually speak, even though she has such a gift for it and such a skill for it. And so I'm so excited for you guys to hear her. She'll come up kind of on the second half of the night. Um, and I just can't wait. So uh, as you know, the whole night we're talking about sexuality, dating, relationships, um, all of those different things, which in one form or another, all of us are thinking about. That's what we're thinking about. That's what we're trying to process. That's what's going on in our actual life. And so tonight, I want to kind of unpack God's vision for that, but I'm going to do it in a little bit roundabout way in the sense of I know what Alyssa is going to bring tonight. It's going to be amazing and incredible. And so because of that, I actually just want to read a story from scripture that actually doesn't explicitly say sex or relationships or dating or anything in that, even though I think it clearly, when we get going, you'll see, has a lot to say about that. And so I'm really excited. I don't know if you guys brought your Bibles. If you did, I'll be in Luke 15. If you didn't, don't worry about it. I'll be reading from it. So you can just go ahead and listen. Um, But I'm so excited to be with you guys. And what we're going to look at is the story of the prodigal son. Now, this is a deeply impactful and important story to me um, for a few different reasons. And uh, the first one being, actually, I don't know about you guys, but when I was your guys' age, I actually heard this message a lot. The prodigal son story was always kind of reserved for like the Friday night at youth camp. You know what I mean? Where it's like highly emotional and amazing. You guys know those nights, right? And then everyone's supposed to like get saved. I got saved like 19 times. Anyone else? Right? It's like... (laughs) Don't do that. That's like, it's once is good. We're good. You follow Jesus, you're good, right? You can fall, but you're still saved. Um, And I always kind of heard this message in that context. And there's actually a lot of beautiful and amazing truths in the sense of it. It's such a beautiful call to action in regards to Jesus calling us to his heart, calling us to the Father's heart. But I think there's a lot more layers there. And so that's what I want to kind of chat about with you guys 
tonight. And so that's what we're going to do. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to start in verse 1 to set the scene where Jesus is teaching. He's surrounded by these people, and then something starts to unravel or starts to uh, unfold in front of him. And it says this, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Who's him? Jesus. There we go. Just making sure you're awake. We are good. Now, real quick, tax collectors and sinners, that was just kind of a euphemism in the first century for kind of the, the for lack of a better term, the um, people that no one else liked or wanted to be around, the people, that people, the, other pe- the people that other people saw as dirty, as broken, as unloved, as not good enough, right? Maybe uh, that they shouldn't be around them, they shouldn't associate with them. And we all have people like that, not only in our society, but I think even some of us, I know for me, we have parts of that in our hearts, right? Where we feel unloved. We feel like there's parts of us we don't want to expose. And yet it, what's crazy about that first verse is it says what? What were those people doing? They were drawn near to Jesus. Do you realize that the God of scriptures that we find in Jesus is actually a deeply gentle, gracious, and incredibly powerful, but also loving God to the point where we usually hear and think that the most unlovable people or the people that aren't good enough, et cetera, should maybe run from God. It actually says there's something coming out of this man named Jesus that's so beautiful and amazing that the people that are feeling like they're unlovable or dirty or broken actually are what? draw near to him. They want to be with him. And clearly he must be emanating some type of power in the way of them feeling loved and appreciated and wanted. And him saying, I want to be with you. And that's the message he's saying tonight, by the way. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, good, bad, whatever you think, wherever you put yourself on the scale or the spectrum of life, you can be drawn near to Jesus because he wants to know you. He wants to know you. So that's the very first verse. But then it says this, and the Pharisees and the scribes then grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, again, Pharisees and scribes, again, in the first century, it's kind of like a euphemism for the most religiously devout people of the day. The opposite, the people that, the people that every, were, were doing everything right, that had done all the right things, that had dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's socially and morally and religiously. They were looked up to. They were seen as perfect. They were seen as shiny. They were seen as holy. And yet somehow these people actually see this unfolding and they say they grumbled. What a fascinating picture that somehow the religious people of that day didn't really love this Jesus guy, right? Something about him was abrasive to their way of life. And so they grumbled and then it says, so he told them this parable. So before we actually get into the story, who's the parable actually to? Pharisees and the scribes, right? He's actually telling this story to the most religiously devout people of the day. So as we read through it, kind of have that in the back of your mind, and I think we'll get to there at the end, that it's not to the sinners and tax collectors, even though it is in a sense, but the thrust of it is actually him responding to the people that are grumbling about how the sinners and tax collectors are being drawn near to him. So it starts there, and then you can jump down to verse 11, because he tells three stories in a row that all kind of have the same thrust, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then we talk about the sons. And it says this in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, real quick, by the way, in first century Middle Eastern culture, if you were to ask for your inheritance before your father dies, that is one of the most culturally inappropriate things you could possibly do. That's literally giving your dad the middle finger. And I'm not saying that to be insanely serious. It's like we don't have a cultural, it's worse. We don't have, I can't, I can't actually think of something to describe to you how bad, like, because what are you saying if you're saying you want your inheritance? You're dead to me. I want nothing to do with you. Give me my stuff. Just give me my stuff. I don't want the relationship. 
I think, by the way, that's a really interesting metaphor of what Genesis and the whole scriptures actually say we all kind of do since the curse has fallen on all of us. Do we actually look at God and we say, I don't want you, I just want your stuff. I know how sex works better than you. I know how money works better than you. I know how relationships work better than you. I know how everything works better than you. I know. I wish you would die. Give me your stuff. What an actually act of grace that we're even still living. Do you realize that? Like the very, like, like for us to actually smite God and actually be rebellious to him, he actually has to give us the breath in our lungs to do that. Do you realize that? What an act of grace. That this father is not just throwing lightning bolts down from heaven. That's Zeus, by the way, not Yahweh. Big difference. <laughs> this God is a God of long suffering. And it seems like this father is too, by the way, because again, first century, this would have been deeply problematic for a son to do this, where probably anyone, any father, patriarchal culture, again, Middle Eastern culture, would have just probably immediately kicked him out and said, yeah, no, yeah, right, right, get out of the family, I never want to see you again. But this father kind of just says, okay. Probably grieving in his heart, probably with tears in his eyes, but still says, it just says, and he divided his property between them. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. He wasted it immediately. And when he spent everything, a severe, severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So real quick, the son takes his stuff, takes his inheritance, thinks he knows he knows better than God or than his father, that he actually can handle it, he can do it, that it will go well for him. How well does it go for him? Not very well. It says he squanders it. He wastes it. It does not go well for him. I mean, I know all of us probably thought we'll find ourselves in that position one way or another where we think we know better and sooner or later those wires will get crossed and it'll short circuit. Sooner or later, it will self-destruct. Sooner or later, we will hit a brick wall based on our decisions if we are not living in the design of our creator. Maybe that's now, maybe that's 10 years from now, but I want you to hear that we could maybe understand the Father's heart and actually see what's going on here. But a lot of us, maybe that's you tonight, and maybe that will be you soon. But what's fascinating, too, is right when it starts not working for him, does he come home immediately? No. It says he then goes and hires himself out to the citizens of that country, and he begins basically feeding with the pigs. He basically says, like, I'm going to make it work. What pride, Right? What pride where when it doesn't go well for him and everything's wasted, rather than coming home, he actually says, I'm going to make it work. Do you know that's actually the one thing that actually separates Christianity from all other world religions is to actually enter into the kingdom of God according to following Jesus? You actually need to humble yourself and say, I can't do it. That's actually a qualification, right? I think I've, I've, another pastor I've heard say is a better way to say it is he said, the only thing you need to be a Christian is need. That's the qualification of saying, like, you actually need it. All other world religions are actually the opposite. They actually almost, in some sense, fulfill your pride because it's all about climbing the ladder to heaven of eating this way, praying this way, doing this way, acting this way, and then maybe at the end of time you might get into heaven. But Jesus says, no, no, you can't do that. If you would actually just admit that, surrender, open your heart and your hands and say, I can't do it. And he goes, there we go. That's who I'm looking for. Might that be you tonight? That to have an intimate relationship with your creator, all you have to say is, I can't do it on my own. It's that simple. 
I can't do it on my own. So he goes and he feeds with the pigs, and then it does not go well for him. So many of us were digging these wells in high school is when it starts. Maybe even earlier, maybe even middle school, <clears throat> where we dig these wells of chasing after things specifically in regards to sexuality, masturbation, pornography, whatever it is, thinking that they're going to satisfy us, and they never do. They never do. Or in some sense, what's interesting is another way to think about it is they only satisfy if your heart is living in a desert. And here's what I mean by that. Toilet water is disgusting. Can we agree with that? Okay. So, like, even though it looks clear and white, that's not, you don't want to drink that, right? But if you're all of a sudden get transported to a desert and you've been there for four days or whatever, or three days, and you haven't ate or drank in that amount of time, and you're about to die, and a toilet bowl automatically shows up, are you going to drink it? Yes, and you will love it right? It's disgusting, but if you're in the desert and you are parched and you're dying of thirst, you will drink it and you will guzzle it and you will love it. Let's be honest. Why? Because of the context of where you're actually at. See, it only feels good or tastes good or however you want to kind of interpret all these other different things. Why? When your heart is dry, when you're in the desert, when you actually don't understand God's design and his fullness, he wants to give you better water than that. So even though in some sense it might feel good, you actually need to understand you're not meant for the desert. Amen. You're meant for home. And there's a big difference, right? So you're in the desert, but let's say all of a sudden you're at your house. When you're thirsty, where do you go? The sink or the kitchen or the filter or whatever, right? Now, when you're walking to the kitchen, when you pass by the bathroom, do you go, oh, don't drink it, don't drink it, don't drink it, don't drink it? <laughs> do you do that? Do you do that? No, right? Again, what a fascinating picture of this conversation around sexuality and all these different things that we lean into in maybe a broken way or in a way that's kind of destroying us or hurting us. So many of us think God just wants us to just not look, not look, don't touch, don't do it, don't do it, and try really hard. It's like, no, no, no. What you really need to realize is God actually wants to give you a better pleasure, God wants to give you better water. You don't do that when you actually understand what you're designed for, the water of life, Jesus. You don't just white-knuckle your way to heaven. You actually walk by and say, I got something better. I got something better. That's what God has created you for. Sex in the context of marriage, a male plus female covenant that we'll get to in a second, is God's design. And so many of us, we just settle for cheap Toilet water. That I'm not lying in saying that, yeah, in some sense it does satisfy, but only in the context of the desert, which we are not created to live in. Verse 17, it keeps going. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants, which I find hilarious because he's basically practicing his come home speech, is he not? Right? It's like he, there's no one's around him, and he's basically like practicing this like calculated prayer is going to bring back to God, which is so funny. Um, and he gets into it and he repeats it when he actually gets home, which is like it's just fascinating. And verse 20 says, And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, just like the come home speech he practiced before, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat 
and celebrate for my son was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate. What a picture of grace that this son is in this position of dying of thirst and he comes home Well, first, he practices his come-home speech, thinking that he needs to calculate it and make it all perfect again, which, by the way, do you notice he doesn't finish it when he actually says it to his dad? It's almost like, to me, like his dad saying, yeah, shut up, that's good, let's move on, right? Like, so many times we do that with God, right? I'm just like, oh, we kind of come, we like do this weird thing where we're like, okay, I'm 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 going to get it all mathematically correct and all perfect, I'm going to go to God and say, okay, God, I messed up, I maybe, you know, shouldn't have had sex with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, or I looked at porn again, or whatever, so I'm going to kind of get it all fixed, I'm going to come back to you, God, and I'm going to say, I'm going to be in 14 accountability groups, 17 Bible studies, I'm not going to miss a night of youth group, and then we come, we come back and we say it, and first of all, he's like, dude, I'm God, like, I heard it back there, right? Like, no need to repeat yourself, and second, he's like, that's not how I operate, let's party, you came home. And that's what's going on in this story. The son comes home, and does the dad just kind of say, waiting, waiting? Does he do that? Where does it say the son, where does it say the father saw him? A long way off. Not a trick question. How do you see someone a long way off? If you're looking for them, right? If you're actually looking for them. Do you really believe that's the heart and nature of God, the father, that we find in scriptures? That he is actively looking for you in this moment. For the rest of your life, are you going to come out of hiding? Are you going to say, here I am? Are you going to say, yes? He's looking for you. So many times we believe this picture of God almost inside the house with his back to us watching the TV or something like that or not caring about us, right? He's aloof to us. He's just watching this. He he doesn't know your name. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't want you. That's a lie from Satan. When we actually see the father himself being described from Jesus himself, it's a father who's on the porch of heaven saying, where is my son? Where is my daughter? When will they come home? And the minute he even sees a tiny little speck out on the horizon, what's he do? He runs. He runs, which again, this is even deeper in the first century. The Middle Eastern culture, patriarchal culture was deeply, deeply shameful for any adult Hebrew male to run, right? And it kind of makes sense because they had those toga things, which is just awkward. It's like, I don't know, how do you do that? You know, it just looks weird. But it's a deep, it's a huge, deep honor culture in the first century. And so it kind of looked shameless, right? It kind of looked unbecoming for someone, a patriarch to kind of run. It looked childish. It looked foolish. But again, what a picture for, to me, I think of the cross, that God was willing to look foolish to chase you down, to actually die on a cross. It actually says the cross is foolishness. That God wants to come to you and he doesn't care what it looks like and that he is going to chase you down and he wants you. So he runs and then when he gets to him, it says what? It says he embraces him and kisses him. Does it say he runs to him and then says, like, oh, bro, you smell, take a shower? Does it do that? Because by the way, where did he just come from? The pigs. Now again, did Jews like pigs? No. Bacon? Nah, right? That's not their thing. So not only is he actually probably literally unclean because he came from the pig side, he's probably dirty and filthy and gross, but on top of that, he's ceremonially unclean. He's ceremonially unclean because he had basically hired himself out to a Gentile family. So his father according to anyone who would have been listening to this story, was not allowed to touch him without him being immediately unclean also. But it says he runs to him, probably knows this truth, and then it says, and in that, he embraces him and kisses him. Here, this is not a trick question. If someone has, if someone's filthy, 
and you hug them, like let's, I mean, you got it. He probably has pig crap on him, right? Like if he's filthy, he hasn't showered and he hasn't, you know, they don't got Old Spice back then. And he's just, you know, and it's the Middle Eastern hot sun. It's all crusted and gross on him. He came from the pigsty. It says the pigs were better than him. He's got to have it on him, right? Now, not a trick question again. When you hug someone with pig crap on you, what do you get on you? Sorry, can I say that? Too late. You get it on you too, right? Because here's why. Intimacy always involves an exchange at some level. And he's willing to get so close to his son that he's not only embracing him, he's actually bringing the filth on himself. When you hug someone who's dirty, you get dirty. What a picture of the cross again. Do you realize that's the power and the amazing, crazy nature of the cross? That Jesus, literally with his arms wide open, literally on the cross, says all your filth, all your shame, all your guilt, all your sexual sin that you are feeling the weight under, that burden under, he goes, give it to me, I can take it. Give it to me, he can take it. Do you believe that tonight? That he can take it. That he can embrace you in the hurt in the mess, and actually our mess, our sin, our brokenness, our pain, stuff that's been done against you that's not your fault or something that maybe you have done that is still hurting you to this day, he takes it on himself. He says, give it to me. Give it to me. That's the good news of the gospel, by the way. When we call the gospel good news, that's what it is right there. That's crazy, explosive, scandalous news in my opinion that the God of the universe would be willing to embrace us so close in our mess and take it on himself. He didn't have to do that, but he wanted to because he loves us and he desires to be with you. And that's the picture of the cross, guys, that he takes it on himself, puts it down into the grave, resurrects into new life, and turns around and says it's staying there. Do you realize that's also for sins that you can't even realize that you will commit in the future? Like, he didn't just die for your past sins. Does that make sense? Because, by the way, when he went to the cross, it was all future sins. He embraces your entire life that you will walk through and live in, and he buries it and then resurrects to new life and makes you a new creation. New creation, a new way of life, renewal, restoration, forgiveness, grace, Love, everything you've already been looking for in a cheaper way and all those other things, he says, fullness, I got it, I'm giving it to you. That's the Jesus of the scriptures, guys, and it's profound and beautiful and amazing. But notice what's crazy with how scandalous this would have been, because by the way, this father, the way this is playing out again, the, the people hearing this, like, this is a weird dad. Like, this is not how it would have played out in anyone's mind. In regards to this high honor culture, in regards to the patriarchal culture, that this father would look shameless and foolish and then embrace him in the mess and then just be so scandalous in his love. It's weird, right? It's crazy. It's explosive. But yet he does that. And even after doing that, the son still doesn't get the point. What's the first thing he does after all of this explosive things happen right in front of him? What's he do? He goes into his stupid come home speech which he practiced, by the way, before all these explosive things happened. So it's like, were you paying attention? Again, so many of us, we have our head down just concentrating on our own sin. We miss what God is doing right in front of us. And I'm not saying sin's not serious. It's enormously serious. It killed God. But we also have to realize that he wants us to look at him in the face and he can take it. It's his job, not yours. It's his job, not yours. 
And so he didn't get it, though. He was self-wallowing. He just is looking at himself, feeling shameful still, and he goes into a stupid come-home speech. What's, what's fascinating, though, is the come-home speech is revealing. He says, I'm not worthy to be a son. Make me one of your what? Servants. Now, why is that interesting? Because those are two very fundamentally different relationships. And I think a lot of us, we get stuck in the wrong one and not understand God's true heart. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, what do you mean you're not worthy to be a son? Last time I checked, like, that's not, you don't need to be worthy. You just are. You get the last name and you're born, right? I don't ever see any, like, worthy tests in the hospital. Anyone else? It doesn't work like that. It shows that he fundamentally doesn't understand what it means to be a son. Another way he's saying it is, I'm not worthy to be a child of yours. I'm not worthy to be under the promise. I'm not worthy to be under your last name or under your covenant. I'll explain that in a second. Instead, make me an employee, right? And so many of us, we think we're just employees of God, do we not? And what's different about an employee to a child is the covenant versus a contract. Now, let me explain that for a second. A son relationship or a daughter relationship, a child relationship, is what we call a covenantal relationship, meaning the glue of that relationship, the parent and the kid, is not the behavior, it's the promise. Does that make sense? The glue is the promise, not the behavior. Meaning, if the behavior's bad enough, does anything happen to the kid's last name? No, right? But over here, this is a contract relationship where the glue is not the promise. The glue of a contract relationship is the behavior, right? We do contracts in school. We do contracts in our job. Um, let's take like even a job, right? You go to a job. If you mess up bad enough at a job, what happens? You get fired. And that's normal and that's fine because that's a contract relationship. The thing that's holding it together is what? The behavior. The behavior is the glue. If the behavior is not good enough, the relationship is broken. It is severed. But that's a contract relationship, a servant and employee relationship. But God says, I'm not looking for employees. I'm looking for kids, I'm looking for children, people who want to be under the promise. And that's way more powerful, by the way, to actually be under covenant. So many of us, we live over here, and we think that we're just one sin away from God, what? Firing us. If only I mess up bad enough, or if only I you know, do that one more thing, or if only I look at that thing I shouldn't have looked at, then God's just going to throw in the towel on me. And we feel this deep shame. So then what we do is we isolate and we hide. Because whenever you feel like you're about to get fired, well, then you can't be honest because you don't want to get fired. But over here, when you're actually under covenant, it gives you freedom to be honest. It's the exact opposite. I mean, have you ever seen that in an actual parent-kid relationship, right? Where the kid just like messes up bad enough, like, oh, you stupid Johnny, you know, spilled the Fruity Loops, get out of the family, I never want to see you again. <laughs> you should like call the cops or something if that happens, right? I've never seen that. I've never heard of that. Why? Because that's not how it works. Like it fundamentally doesn't operate like that. You have the last name and then you grow up in your life. Do you realize that's the good news of the gospel? That you're given a new identity? You're given a new name? You become a new person? And then you grow from that. And yes, you'll mess up. Sure, of course. But you're growing on a trajectory towards holiness, towards God, towards the Father's heart. Same thing with marriage, right? Like you don't get married at age 99 once you've dated for 80 years and you're finally like really, really good. No, you get married first when you're like young and you can't believe it and you probably shouldn't even be legal to get married because how ridiculously crazy it is when you get dropped into that bomb. Love you, Liz, wherever you're at. Um, I'm more speaking for her to me because I'm like, yeah, she like, yeah, you know what I mean? Okay, um, I just can't believe she married me. Yeah, she, she got a handful. Um, you get married early under the what? Covenant, 
and then you grow from there. That's what God's looking for. He's looking to walk with his people under covenant, under promise. And when you have that, then you can be deeply honest. And again, like marriage, there's no other relationship I have that's more freeing than the one I have with Alyssa because we're under covenant, and so I can be fully free to just be honest. Why? Because I know she's not going anywhere. She made a promise. And God, in his very nature, says, I made a promise when I went to the cross and came out of the grave for you. And so wherever you're at, that's what he's inviting you to tonight. That's what he's inviting you to tonight. Um, Now let's finish with the last part of the story because I wasn't sure where I wanted to end, but I think what's fascinating about this story is so many of us, we usually end right there. We get to the end of the first son, and that's when usually we wrap it up, close it up, come into the party, you know, right? Because God says this feast, he throws the celebration. It's amazing and it's incredible. And he says, come into the party. That's what he wants from us. But we usually end there and not actually finish the story. Now, can we just admit cutting Jesus off and like not letting him finish is like, just let the man finish. Can we agree with that? <laughs> right? Like if there's still more story, then I think we should continue. So let's finish. It says right here in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, which I love that part, by the way, because he doesn't know his, son, his brother is back yet, so he just thinks his dad's home alone, and he hears music and dancing. That just screams midlife crisis, does it not? Okay. <laughs> and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go into his father. And so his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, which is fascinating, like listen to that hatred. He doesn't say my brother. When this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for my, your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he's found. Now, what's fascinating about the end of that story. So there's this huge explosion of grace. There's this huge moment where you see the covenantal love at the heart of God in this father that's incredible and amazing and should have just blown away everyone around them. And he says, he says let's throw a feast. Let's throw a party because my son's home and that's all that matters and the rest of the relationship is restored. Let's party. Which, by the way, do you believe that Jesus that we find in scriptures actually is a God who cares about partying? God is not a huge buzzkill. He actually wants to give you more joy. He wants to celebrate. He wants to throw a party, not the one that leaves you sick the next day, but one that gives you true flourishing. There's a big difference. Every gift that is created on earth in its context is from the heart of God and says, feast, enjoy. I created it. And you can worship him in it. God is a God of blessing. Do you realize that? Of goodness. That everything from art to music to food to sexuality in its context is incredible. It's a gift to be enjoyed, and then thank the giver. He throws parties, and he wants to throw a party for you when you come home. That's the God we find in Jesus. But yet this happens, and all the older brother can do is say what? Three words. That's not fair. Talk about him missing the point also. This one just goes to a stupid come-home speech, and this one sees the explosion of grace and just says, that's not fair. 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 I was good enough. I've been to church my whole life. 
I've never had sex before marriage. I've never looked at pornography. I've never done this. Why does that person get to follow Jesus? Or why does that person get to come into the fold? Or why does that person get to this? Talk about, again, missing the point. It seems to me like it almost as if Jesus is trying to paint two tracks here in the story, right? It seems to me like Jesus is almost trying to paint a, a, a picture of particular people who are more bent towards going and enjoying the gifts without the giver. Does that make sense? Meaning like going out and distorting what God has given us, just like the younger brother saying, give me my inheritance, I wish you would die. And maybe that's you in this room, again, with things of the nature of relationships, sex, pornography, all those different things. But then it seems to me like there's also a second track. It seems to me like Jesus is saying, yeah, that's not the only type of people we see. There's also another group of people who sometimes actually come over here and start making certain rules and behaviors around sexuality. They're about earning God's favor rather than actually doing them because you realize you're already loved. There is a difference there, by the way, even though it plays out in the same behavior. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say here is you don't do things to earn God's love. You do certain things in regards to rules and regulations and the law because you already have God's love. Here's another way to put it. Because I'm married to Alyssa and I love her so much, I act in a certain way. Does that make sense? Not, oh, I act in a certain way so that just maybe she'll get married to me. She already is. But because I love her so much, I live faithful. I honor her with my speech, with my words, with how I live. And that's what God is looking for. But so many of us, I know in high school specifically, sometimes we can start getting um, caught up in the rules, right? In regards to identifying ourselves not as God's beloved children, but just, oh, I don't do this, so I'm a good person. Now, what's funny is they sometimes look the same, again, because the behaviors are very similar, but you have to, are you actually coming at it from a relational heart with the heart of God? Or are you just doing certain things in hopes that he might love you? Or do you actually believe he already loves you and you can live holy because of that? You can live blameless because of that. You can honor him with your body because of that. Has the heart of God and the love of God hit you first? It has to for us to be able to actually have enough gas in the tank to live a holy life for the rest of our life. Back to the white knuckling thing. If we just try to white knuckle our way there, it never works. It never works. And so tonight, what I would encourage you with is what son would you most identify? What son would you most identify in this story? Would it be the one who goes and takes advantage of God's gifts or the one who thinks that he needs to earn God's love? Because you know what's fascinating is to me, it seems like the solution is the same. Over here, God says what? He comes to his son, gives him the explosion of grace, and then says, come into the party. Come into the feast. Come into relationship with me, and that's when you will live right that's when you will live in the proper way. That's when you will look like a son. But then to the older son, what's he do also? What's the solution to the older son? The son basically just says, that's not fair. I'm good. I've earned this rather than it being a gift of grace. Basically, here's another way to put it. When the son says that's not fair to the father, do you realize like the that's not fair game with God, you never win? <laughs> like that, like here's what I'm trying to say. It doesn't end well trying to like say, God, that's not fair. Because if he were to actually give us fair, we wouldn't be here. So first of all, like everything, even the breath you just took, is a gift of grace. And so even to the older brother, though, he comes out and what's he do? He says, you too, come in to 
the party. So the solution's the same, no matter what person you think you most align with, the older or the younger brother. Younger brother, come into the party, feast with me, be in relationship with me. Younger, older brother, come into the party, feast with me, be in relationship with me. So wherever you're at tonight, that's what I would encourage you with, is do you actually know the God of the party? The God who wants to give you and bless you with a life of flourishing, living under his design, not only for sexuality, but for relationships, how to honor people, how to be human, how to actually live in regards to honoring and trusting him with your resources, with your time, with your talents. Do you believe that's the God of the universe? Do you believe you can trust him with all of that? You can trust him with your stuff and you can trust him with your body. He knows better. He knows how it works. He's the designer. He's the creator. You can trust him. And so no matter who you align with the story and who you feel like you more associate with, the question or the, 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 the promise is the same, and that is come in to the party. Come celebrate. Come feast with God. You know when, God, when Jesus wants to describe the kingdom of heaven and when Jesus comes to earth and he basically wants to kind of describe to people what's happening because it kind of was looking so explosive and amazing, what are almost all the images he uses every single time? Does he say, come on, guys, kingdom of heaven, it's a big prison, come in. Does he do that? No. What's he do? Almost every single time, it's a feast. It's a wedding. It's a party. It's a banquet. That sounds like somewhere I want to go. Amen? Amen. And that's the God of the universe inviting you there to his table right now, tonight. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. And I just pray, Lord, wherever anyone is tonight, that they would just allow the grace that's so explosive in this story to saturate their hearts, Lord. And that all of us, no matter where we're at in this room, in regard to decisions we've made, things we're ashamed of, Lord, that we would open our hands, offer it to you, and say, Lord, we want to be with you. We want to walk with you. We want you to be king of our lives. And Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you grant so powerfully for free when we just come home. When we just come home, you embrace us in our mess. You give us a robe of righteousness, of goodness, of blessing, of holiness, of blamelessness. You see us as your very son. And so Jesus, we thank you for tonight and we thank you for your love.